praise the Lord. Let's read the scriptures together. If you have your Bibles, would you please turn, first of all, for an Old Testament reading in the book of Deuteronomy. These are some of the final words of Moses to the nation of Israel before they crossed the Jordan River into the Promised Land. Deuteronomy chapter 8, beginning at verse 6. So you shall keep the commandment of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs flowing out in the hills and the valleys, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper, and you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I commanded you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Beware, lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. And from the New Testament, the Gospel of Luke, Chapter 16, beginning at verse 10. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. It's the word of the Lord. Let's ask his blessing upon it. Lord, thank you that your word is upright in all things, and that your work is faithful in all ways. Help us, I pray, in our hearts, our minds, and our souls to hear. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. For some time, I have been thinking about doing a short series on wealth and possessions. Months ago, I started thinking about this, and as we worked our way through the book of James, I thought uh, it's appropriate to continue down this road. And there's a few verses that um, Barry read, which I think resonate and set the theme for our short series, um, the first was from Deuteronomy where he says, Beware lest you think that everything God has given you, you have created yourself or you have gotten yourself by your own wisdom, intellect, and strength. And then the second text I think also summarizes that you can't have two gods. You can't have two masters. You can only have one master. 
And so we're going to take a number of weeks to dive into this. It's a little bit unusual for us here. Normally we open a book of the Bible and work our way through that. Um, but this is uh, certainly going to be a topical series. We'll be going all over scriptures for the next little while. I have a rough plan. Um, the first uh, is to talk about ownership. Who owns everything that we think we own? Uh, the second is stewardship. How do we use the things that God has given to us to look after for him? And the third will be giving. It certainly won't be a three-week series, but those are sort of the three broad um, uh, topics in which we'll be covering one of the things that you cannot escape if you begin reading what the scriptures have to say about money and possessions is that how we handle those things is an index of our spiritual lives. Money, if you will, is a spiritual barometer. There is an intimate connection, as we will soon discover, between wealth and possessions and our use of them and our thinking of them and our spiritual relationship with God and our spiritual health. One person said, Jesus Christ said more about money than any other single thing. Because when it comes to a man's real nature, money is of first importance. Money is an exact index of a man's true character. All through scripture, there is an intimate correlation between the development of one's character and how one handles one's money. I realize this more than ever to be true, even in my own life. And we can see today in ways that we maybe couldn't see years ago exactly how we spend our money. We have bank statements. We can go online and see everywhere we spend money and everything we spend money on. We can get our credit statements. We can get our Amazon orders. And we can look at every way and every person and everything that we spend money on. And as we do that, we will begin to have our hearts exposed. What is it that we really value? Where is our treasure really hidden? Where are we putting our trust? Randy Elkhorn makes a fascinating statement in one of his books. It's a justification in ways of turning to Scripture for help in understanding how you and I are to use money and possessions. He writes, we come to the Bible for comfort not financial instruction often. If we want to know about money, we're more likely to pick up the Wall Street Journal or Fortune or Forbes. Scripture, we say, should concern itself with what's spiritual and heavenly. Money is physical and earthly. The Bible is religious. Money is secular. Let God talk about love and grace and brotherhood. Thank you. Let the rest of us talk about money and possessions and do whatever we want with them. But as he later comments, he says, we soon realize the sheer enormity of Scripture's teaching on this subject screams for our attention. And the haunting question is this, why? Why does God give us so much instruction about money and possessions? Considering everything else that we really want to know, why did the Savior of the world spend 15% of his recorded words on this one subject? Why did he say more about how we handle in our view of money and possessions than any other single thing? What did he know about money and possessions that we don't, but that we need to know? The title of the series is Ownership, It All Belongs to God. 
That's a foundational, fundamental truth as we begin to approach this topic of money and possessions. And I want us to fix that in our hearts and minds as we begin to work our way through this look at what the Bible has to say about these things. The truth is literally life-changing. It will change the way that we think. It will change the way that we work. It will change the way that we trust. It will change the way that we handle our money. If we come to understand that foundational truth that the world and all it contains belongs to God. Because from that one fundamental truth flows so many others out of it. And because whatever wealth that we have, it comes to us from a sovereign God. And if it comes to us from him, then ultimately we should be able to trust him for any and every need that we might have. So I want to just begin by laying out a biblical framework by five or six questions that I found elsewhere, but I've added and moved around for my own purposes. But just beginning to frame a biblical mindset as we head into this look at money. The first is simply a question. Are we faithful in how we handle money. Faithful is the key word in the text that we're going to read. Faithful means to be trustworthy or honest or careful. In Luke chapter 16, verse 10 to 13, as we just read, it says there, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. One who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you with true riches? Three sort of general principles that I want to throw out for your consideration. The first is the principle of faithfulness. When it comes to money and possessions, the issue is not what you would do with something if you had it, but what are you doing right now with what you have? See, the amount may change in our lives, but the principle doesn't. And if one has learnt to be faithful with $100, then in general it will be consistent that they will also then be faithful with $100,000 they may receive later in life. See, Jesus here is not asking you to think about what you would do if you had $10,000. What he's asking you to think about is what are you doing with what you have right now? With what you have in the bank or what you have in your wallet? He is not dealing with a hypothetical here. No, he's talking about what will you do with what you have at this moment? Again, it's a principle. It's not the amount. And this is something that then we can teach with our children at a very young age and as they grow up. What do you do with the $5 allowance that I give you? It matters that you learn to be faithful with $5. What do you do with the first check that you receive from your first job? It matters that you learn to be faithful with that first $220 that you get from Tim Hortons. Because those principles that you put in place in your life when you have a little amount will carry you through when God may choose to bless you with a great amount. If you can't trust your child to bring you back the correct change when you send them to the store, then how can you trust them with matters of greater importance? So the first is simply the principle of faithfulness. The second, though, contained in those verses is the principle of character. If you're dishonest with a little, then you will be dishonest with a lot. If you are stingy with a little 
you will be stingy with a lot. If you steal when you have a little, you will steal when you have a lot. If you're dishonest with the government when you have a little, you will be dishonest with the government when you have a lot. It's a character issue. It's a principle of life. The way that you earn and handle a little bit of money will be determinative in general of the way that you earn and handle a lot of money. Faithfulness and honesty are character issues. Possessions are neutral. Money is neutral. But what one does with them, how one uses them, how one obtains them, how one thinks about them are not neutral. And the third principle out of Luke is a fascinating one if you work it through. First, Jesus is talking about two kinds of riches, isn't he? He's talking about unrighteous riches or earthly wealth, and he's talking about spiritual riches. He's talking about material riches and spiritual riches, treasure on earth, if you will, treasure in heaven. And what he says is very important. He says there is a connection between the two. And there is a priority of place between the two. One is a training ground to being entrusted with the other. One is of temporal value, the other is of internal value. One is of little value, the other is of great value. They are mutually exclusive masters, though. And he says, if you are not able to handle material wealth faithfully, who will ever entrust you with spiritual wealth? You see, this is the same principle that's behind elders in the church. If you are unable to manage your own family well first, how will you ever be able to manage the family of God? How you handle your home and your own businesses turns out to how you can handle spiritual wealth and riches. So again, if, if you can't handle material wealth, why will God ever bless you with spiritual riches and spiritual responsibilities? If you want God to give you spiritual resources to manage, then demonstrate faithfulness with the material wealth that he gives you. That's challenging, isn't it, as we think that through? Second question. Is there a significant correlation between handling money and our spiritual condition? I'll probably repeat a little bit of what I said at the introduction, but if this were a question of biblical statistics alone, then clearly the answer is yes. There are well over 2,000 references in the Bible to money and possessions or to material wealth, more than the total references to faith and prayer combined. 16 of the 38 parables that Jesus taught were about material possessions. And again, as I've already mentioned, about 15% of Jesus' recorded words concern material possessions and wealth, more than what he said about heaven and hell combined. So again, as I said, the Bible seems to be telling us and wants us to understand that money and possessions are a spiritual barometer. They reveal the condition of our soul and of our attitudes concerning money and possessions. But again, remember that money and possessions are morally neutral. John MacArthur said, 
money in itself is neither righteous nor evil. It is morally neutral. However, money is an accurate measure of one's morality. There, there are a couple of stories that illustrate this, the connection between money and spiritual reality. The first is the story of a man named Zacchaeus. And almost all of us know the story of Zacchaeus. We're going to have more to say about Zacchaeus later in the series that we come to it, but just a few sentences that, that begin to illustrate this relationship. After Jesus had spent some time um, walking down the street, had found Zacchaeus hiding in a tree, he calls him down and he says, Zacchaeus, I want to go to your house. And the assumption is that they talked about spiritual things and that Zacchaeus warmed towards what Christ says. And in fact, it seems that he invited Christ to take over control of his life. And then Luke says this, And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. This gives the essence of Zacchaeus' response to Jesus and the discussion of life and spiritual issues and repentance. But notice the comment that Jesus makes right after that. In verse 9, he says, And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. See, what Luke wants us to see is that salvation immediately impacted Zacchaeus' understanding and view of his money and his possessions. Spiritual life changed his attitude towards not only wealth, but towards others. Because he says, half of my wealth I will give to who? To the poor. This is the first change recorded in him as a result of becoming a true son of Abraham. And because of that change, he had a new relationship with his money and possessions. Contrast this with another very, very familiar story of a rich young ruler who comes to Jesus with one of the most important questions in life. And he says to Jesus, what must I do to, eternal, to inherit eternal life? You can find the story in Mark's gospel in chapter 10, verses 17 to 27. After Jesus explained to him the idea of good and who actually is good, and then went through the necessity of obedience to the commands that God had given, to which this young man replied, yes, I've kept them all. Then Mark says this, and Jesus, looking at him, loved him. But he said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. It's a jaw-dropping moment, really, as you think about it. But you see, the heart of Jesus' command was the reality that you cannot serve two masters. You cannot serve money and serve God at the same time. It's impossible. A person has to choose. And the question that we're going to ask again and again is, who and what will you choose? What would you do if you were this young man? What did the young man do? Well, Mark records what he did. He says, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful. For he had great possessions. 
And Jesus looked around and he says to his disciples, how difficult will it be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of heaven? Do you understand already that there is an intimate connection between money and wealth and possessions and our soul? This young man's attachment to his wealth blinded him to his spiritual poverty. And he stubbornly refused to part with his possessions. Money was his God. How difficult will it be for those with wealth to enter the kingdom of heaven? And so we say, well, is money really that important to God? Well, clearly so, because it reveals our heart. It reveals our loyalties. It reveals what we trust in. It reveals our character. And God wants us to understand the scope of this in our lives. So another question, looked at another way. Why so much emphasis on money and possessions in the Bible? Well, again, let's continue to work this through. Does salvation impact our view of money? Should we handle our possessions differently as children of God than the world around us? Let me ask you as I read this, do you recognize this scene? He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Everyone, or even now, the axe is laid at the root of trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. Now listen carefully. And the crowds asked him then, in response to his statement, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. The crowds asked him then, what shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food, do likewise. Tax collectors also came to him to be baptized and said, Well, teacher, what should we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers came to him and also asked, What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not exhort money or extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation. And be content with your wages. Do you hear the question asked by the crowd? What should we do? What does repentance look like? How are the children of God to live? Based on verse 11, to whom do our possessions and wealth belong? And how does our possession of wealth imply responsibility apart from our own enjoyment? Well, we're to share it. We're to give it with somebody who doesn't have a coat. We're to share it with those who are poor. Notice the responsibilities that people who have, uh, that who work with money even, as John says it. Notice that in every instance, John's response is connected with money and possessions. Share your clothes. Share your food. Be fair in your dealings with others. Don't rip them off. Don't defraud them. Don't overcharge them. Don't steal from others. Don't extort from others. Be content with your wages. You see, John is unable to talk about repentance and spiritual transformation without talking about material issues. 
And you see this borne out in the Bible. You see it in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, uh, and verse, uh, I think it's verse 44 on, in Acts chapter 4, verse 32, on what happens when the people in Jerusalem become followers of Jesus and they repent of their sins. Well, automatically they start um, dispersing their goods and sharing their wealth with those who have need. And what about in Ephesians 19, when salvation comes to the Ephesian community? Those who are transformed by the gospel and have Christ in their life sell millions or burn millions of dollars of books. Yes, God cares about money. Somebody might say, well, isn't what I do with my money my own business? Which is a fascinating statement in the first place. No, it's God's business. And we find that again illustrated in the Bible. We'll see it more and more again. But if all that we have is God's, it's not that we give a little bit to God in our offering and, and maybe through our email account and whatnot, and then the rest is ours. No, as we will see, it's all God's. And so if all that we have is God's, then certainly God cares with what we do, with what he's given us. You might keep what you do with your money and possessions to yourself, but you can't keep what you do with them from God. God knows and God cares. God is concerned about every area of our life, including our wealth and possessions. See, how we handle our money and possessions is no less of a concern to God than how we manage our tongues, as we saw in the book of James, or how we treat our parents if we are children in the home. Or how we treat other people. I have a title on my Amazon wish list of books to get. Does God care who I sleep with? And you might say, God has no business in my bedroom. Yes, he does. And so we can say, yes, God does care about what I do with my money. Let's illustrate this again. Two texts that we'll come back to over the course of this series. The first is found in Mark chapter 4, verse 41 to 44. It's a familiar story again to us. We've, we've heard it dozens of times if we've grown up in the church. Jesus has deliberately chosen a vantage point in the temple treasury. It's a place that he can watch people giving. The temple treasury was part of the woman's court. And it's called the woman's court only because women couldn't go farther than that into the temple. And in that women's court was the temple treasury, and on the outside colonnade were 13 chests, and they were shaped like trumpets that were on the wall. Eleven of them were in order to collect free will offerings, and they were shaped like inverted um, temples, and some wonder if maybe they were made out of brass. And so not only um, were they where people put their money in, but if you listened, you could hear them put their money in. As Jesus sat there in the temple treasury watching he was concerned. He was interested in what people were doing. Yes, it's his business. He knows what's in their heart, and he wanted to use this as a teaching opportunity. And he says, as he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting their money into the offering box, many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And Jesus not only watched, as I said, but he likely heard the clinking of all these coins by the rich people who put in large um, amounts of money and he could barely hear the tinkle of this woman's two little coins. 
but she caught his attention. And he called his disciples to him, and he said to them, Truly I say to you, this widow has put in more than all the others who are contributing to the offering box. For they have all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all that she had to live on. The point for now simply is that Jesus deliberately watched people as they gave. It mattered to him. It mattered to him so much that he wanted to use that as a teaching opportunity for his disciples. The second text is a text that we're also very familiar with. It's about another rich man. You can find this story in Luke chapter 12, verses 16 to 22. The parable is not really concerned about commenting how this man made his wealth. There's no indication or implication that he made it in an unshady way or in a dishonest way. Certainly he just had a lot of money. As the story unfolds, though, this man has done very well, and he's about to do even better. He looks out, and he's got a harvest that is just, it looks like it's going to be one of the best harvests he has ever had. And so he sets out to build bigger barns so he can store his excess so that he can live the rest of his life in ease or to retire. This is the conclusion of the parable. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. You let these two stories rattle around in your brain and your heart a little bit. You think about the poor widow. Isn't it strange, we say to ourselves, that Jesus commended the poor widow who gave everything? And then we think about the parable of the rich man. And Jesus' word to him was a single one fool. As you consider these for a couple of moments, what's the first thing that comes to your heads as you hear these stories? The poor woman, hmm, that's not really a good thing to do, is it? Is that really being responsible with the money that you have? How are you going to pay rent now? How are you going to put groceries on your table when you get home? Do you really want to go through with this? Probably not the wisest decision ever, is it? And then the rich man, good thinking, buddy. Way to plan for the future. Way to work the plan. When's the book coming out? But maybe our natural response to these stories doesn't line up with Jesus' words about these two individuals. So you may be starting to get the idea that what the Bible says about wealth and possessions matters because it reveals our heart. And it matters for eternity. These things have, our views of money have been shaped by the world that we live in. And my goal for me, myself, and for you, is that maybe they will be increasingly shaped by the word that we're to live by. So whose money is it? Whose is this world and this universe? Let me read some scriptures for you. Just let them soak into your heads. Let them, just let them impact you. Deuteronomy 10, 14, the verse that I think summarizes our series. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. All that is in it. 
This isn't hyperbole. There's nothing excluded here. This world, the heavens and the heavens, and all that is in it belong to the Lord. Haggai 2.8. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. This verse comes just after a verse where God says he will shake all the nations So that the treasures of all the nations shall come into his house. The nations don't own those treasures. God does. The silver is his. The gold is his. It's all his. Job 41.11 Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Psalm 50.10-12 For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all of the birds of the hills, all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and all its fullness is mine. Everything, all its fullness, everything that has been made, everything that uses the resources that God created, all the fullness of the world is God's. Psalm 24, 1. The earth and everything in it, the world and its inhabitants, belong to the Lord. For he laid its foundation on the seas and established it on the rivers. Did you catch that? Not only all the stuff in the world, but all the inhabitants of the world. We are not our own. We belong to God who made us as well, who created us. First Chronicles 29, 11 to 12. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. You are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you. You rule over all. In your, in your hand and power and might, or in your hand are power and might, And in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. I'm not sure how we can get away from the teaching of Scripture, which says we owe nothing, that all that we have is God's, by virtue of the fact that it comes from his world that he has made, and he owns everything in it. And that truth should change everything, should it not? If we come to understand, loved ones, that we own nothing, that all that we have comes to us from the hand of God, it will begin to slowly and maybe for some of us rapidly change our understanding of God and his gracious provision, of God and the fact that we can trust him for all things, of God that we don't need to be anxious about anything because he owns it all, he'll give it to us at the right time when we need it. See, he owns everything. Do you ever find yourself driving in a vehicle and saying, thank you, God, for this vehicle? Do you ever find yourself sitting in your house and saying, God, thank you for letting me rent one of your homes? Do you ever look in your closet and say, God, you have blessed me amazingly. Look at all of the clothes that you have lent to me. God, thank you for my bank accounts. You have given me strength and ability to earn this. Thank you for allowing me to manage your money, God. Is that how we think about our possessions? Do you catch yourself saying that? Thank you, Lord, for your food that is in the fridge that you have provided for me. Changes the way that you think. And why is it all the Lord's? We've already hinted at it, but 
Let's read some scripture again. Let scripture make the point. When they heard this, they all raised their voices to God and said, Master, you are the one who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and everything in it. Nehemiah, as he prays, he says, You are the Lord, you alone. You have made the heaven, the heavens of the heavens, all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the sea and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them and the host of heaven worships you. Isaiah 45, 12, I made the earth. I created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heaven. I commanded all their hosts. Acts 17, 24. The Lord who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. And finally, Revelation 4, 11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Why does God own it all? Because he made it all. Why does God own you and I? Because he made us. We are his by virtue of creation. He wove us together. He knit us together in our mother's womb. And we are his by nature of redemption. We are not our own. We have been bought with a price. God owns it all because God made it all. So loved ones, when you think that through, is it really right when you think about anything that you might own or that you might have for you to say, this is mine? This is a great way to begin teaching your children stuff when they begin to fight at a very, very young age. That's mine. That's mine. He took my toy. You can begin to teach them about ownership of things. I think if you think this through a little bit, there is incredible relief as we come to grasp this. If it is God's, then I can ultimately trust him to give you what I need, what I need to care for it. To give me the wisdom to steward what he gives me. To provide what I need to sustain what he has given to me to look after on his behalf. If this is true, why do I need to worry about anything? Are God's resources limited in any way? Can I not trust him to supply what I need? Can I not trust him to provide what I need when I need it? Do I really need to hoard? Do I really need to hang on to stuff? Do I really need to cling to the falsehood, this is mine? God is real, and that changes everything. I was thinking about this as I was reflecting on Job. Remember, Job was an extraordinarily rich man. And in the course of a few short, probably hours, he got one report after another report that everything Everything that he owned was taken away from him. And do you remember his words? Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. That should be our heart, loved ones. As you look around and you see your families and you see your grandchildren and you see your home and you see your possessions and you see your bank account and you see all the things that God has given you to care for, know, understand that God has given all of that to you. Not because you're smart, not because you're bright, at least not smarter or brighter than the next person, 
but because of God's sovereign will, goodness and graciousness, he's given you that to care for. May God give us all the mindset of Job as we begin to work our way through what the scriptures say about money and possessions. Father, we do thank you for your word today. I thank you for the challenge it has been in my life these last number of months in ways that I didn't think it would as I've been thinking again about my own view of possessions and money, my anxiousness, my worry, my presumption about why I might have stuff. I thank you that you are concerned enough about my soul and the souls of those here that your word speaks truth to us. It's in your word, Father, that we find sanity. It's in your word that we find security. It's in your word that we find truth. And Father, as we close, I just also want to pray for the world in which we live and just some of the things that are taking place and going on in it. I sometimes wonder, what do you see when you look down from heaven on the inhabitants of this world? I wonder. I look down and I see chaos and I see division. I see, I see unrest. And so, Father, today, as your people, we do pray for peace in our land, for peace in our world, even. We do pray for those in authority, Father, in these really difficult times, those that you have put over us to rule us and to govern us. Would you give them wisdom, Father? Would you give them sanity? Would you give them reasonableness? Father, would you change their view if it is one of lording it over the people to serving the people, Lord, that you have entrusted in their leadership? Father, we do also pray for justice, that justice will not only prevail, but it will be seen to prevail because that's what so many in our world are longing for, for justice. And Father, Canada is marred by the same realities that we see unfolding in the world around us the same tension, the same offenses against those who have been made in your image. Father, this is your world. All its inhabitants belong to you. We trust your hand is on each one of them and us, even though we don't always see it or understand it. We acknowledge, Father, too, that we're living in a climate of fear. It seems to be something that the evil one is just stirring up in our hearts in so many different places. We live in fear of a virus that is seemingly running around in our world. We live in fear of temperatures that are rising, of ice fields that are retreating. We live in fear for our personal safety, Father, as things get chaotic around us. And it's, it's times such as these that we really do need to cry out, Lord, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Father, we do... And I do thank you specifically for those in law enforcement around us. Such confusing, difficult times to be. We recognize, Father, they're not above the law. But, Father, we do pray for them in these times. I pray, Father, that they may be courageous but gentle. I pray they may uphold the law but show restraint in doing it. Father, would you help us to be respectful of those who are above us to keep these laws and to keep us safe. And finally, I pray for our community, Father, our own community. I pray that Christ would be exalted in Oceanside. Christ is the only answer to our tensions and to our hatred and
to our divisions. Christ is able to bring peace between warring factions. So Father, may you be merciful to us and yet in these times exalt Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' great name. Amen.